Later on this month, we have a short-term missions team leaving for Toronto, Ontario. And now this is a really special group and a special trip because even though Ontario is a lot like upstate New York in a lot of ways, Toronto is a really unique city. Statistically, Toronto is one of the most diverse cities in the whole world. And our team will be there spending the entire time learning about the Arabic culture and Islam. Now the point of this trip, just like all of our short-term missions trips, is discipleship. So this group of brothers and sisters, when they come home, they'll be able to relate to their Muslim friends and neighbors and coworkers in a way that's fresh and intentional. And it'll also help them build confidence to introduce spiritual conversations with the people around them. Let's pray for this group. Pray that, that God would allow them to open their hearts to receive everything he has for them on this trip. Let's pray for the people of Toronto, that they would be blessed by the ministry of our team while they're there. And pray for our brothers and sisters when they come home, that they would be able to use everything that they've learned and experienced to shine even brighter for Jesus Christ here in the Capital Region. I've been on staff here at Grace for almost 10 years now, and I can tell you that as a church, we are blessed with an amazing staff team. And right now we have several open positions on our staff team in kids celebration and in childcare. So if you're someone who loves to work with kids and care for kids, this may be your opportunity to bless the body of Christ with your gift as a staff member at Grace. You can find out all about these open positions on our website at gracefellowship.com jobs. As we roll into summer, giving for 2020 vision remains strong. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for your consistent giving to this campaign. And along with our new campaign giving total of $3.7 million, I'm excited to tell you that we just wrote another check for the humanitarian aid portion of 2020 Vision. Just this past month, we finished funding for a goat farm in Jinja, Uganda. This will be a vital resource for our ministry partners over there as they work towards self-sufficient funding for the wonderful ministry they have to children and orphans there in Jinja. You can find out more about 2020 Vision and find out all about the humanitarian aid portion of the campaign by visiting our campaign landing page. And now I'm going to turn things over to our campus pastors as they open the word for our teaching time today. Well, hello. In 2005, about 15 or so years ago, uh, my wife Nikki and I were newlyweds and we were living in South Carolina at that time. And at that time, I was actually in restaurant management. And interestingly, at this particular time, this restaurant that I worked for had a work release program. And what would happen on a typical work day for me is I would get there around 2 o'clock in the afternoon at the restaurant. I would get the van that the restaurant owned, drive it to a local prison, pick up about half a dozen inmates, and then drive them to the restaurant where I would then manage that restaurant. We would close everything up, get everything set for the next day. The inmates and I would get into a van. I would take them back. Uh, to the prison, and then I would finally drive the van back to the restaurant where I would get my uh, car and get home, usually exhausted and ready to crash most nights around 11.30. Now, at that time, it was a normal night like any other night. I got home on a Saturday night at about 11.30, near midnight, and I was exhausted. I was particularly tired this day. And when I got there, I noticed as I was driving around the apartment building where we lived that there were no open spaces. And we lived where a lot of young people lived. Saturday night was a big party night, so people would just flood into this apartment complex 
and there would be no spaces for people that live there. And as I was driving around this building, I happened to notice one particular spot near the front that just so happened to be a handicapped spot. And now normally I would never entertain the idea of parking in a handicapped spot, but this particular night I was exhausted and I started making excuses. First excuse, hey, I'm tired and I live here. I have a right to park. This problem's kind of created by the people that don't live here visiting. Second excuse, you know, I know the people that live in my building and I don't know of any handicapped people that live here. And furthermore, if they have someone visiting them, it's probably unlikely they're coming after 11.30 at night. Most people are probably here that are gonna be here. And although I have an uncle who's paralyzed and have never done this since and never done it before that moment, I'm ashamed to say I did park in that handicapped spot. And I told myself I would wake up first thing in the morning find an open spot nearby and move my car at that time. Well, the next morning came and I jumped out of bed, knew I needed to move the car. My conscience was bothering me, if I'm being honest, a little bit. And as I get to my car, I notice there's an officer there who's writing me a ticket. I start giving my excuses to the officer and he politely but firmly says, oh, I'm gonna write you a ticket. There's no excuse for what you're doing, but if you would like, there's a date on the ticket, and you can go to traffic court and contest it and see if it might perhaps be reduced or thrown out. So I thought to myself, okay, I've got my excuses uh, pretty much well formulated. I'll go that route. So a few weeks pass. I go to court. We're all sitting in the courtroom waiting for the judge to come in. People are looking down at their tickets, thinking through how they're going to give an excuse to try and get out of this penalty that they deserve for most of us. I certainly did. And as I was looking down at the ticket, I heard someone say, all rise for the honorable judge so-and-so. And we all stood, we snapped up all in unison. And as I looked, I saw that the judge that happened to be there that day was a woman who herself was paralyzed. Needless to say, she was not sympathetic to hearing my excuses, nor should she have been. It's my observation that most human beings, if not all of us, are pretty good at making excuses. We see this in children, we see it with coworkers, we see it with friends, we see it in our own lives. I think, barring a few exceptions here and there, most of us have a tendency to make excuses. And today's message is going to be a message where we allow the Word of God to reveal to us two excuses that God's people made in the day of Haggai that I believe we are making just as much for ourselves here in 2019. But before we jump into that, I wanna tell you where we're going over the next three weeks. Over the next three weeks, we're gonna be going through a study through the Old Testament book of Haggai. And it's a short two-chapter book uh, it's a minor prophet, and I'm personally excited about jumping into this, but I'm aware that many people have different interactions with the Old Testament. Many Christians I've talked to don't quite know what to do with the Old Testament. They often look at it as sort of a second-class scripture, or maybe they've tried to read it and it's been confusing, hard to read, let alone understand. And hey, if that's you, I just want to say 
If you have difficulty understanding the Old Testament, you know what that makes you? Normal. That makes you normal. And if that is you, if you're someone who has struggled to understand the Old Testament, I would love to point out that just about a month ago, on June 9th, I believe it was, Pastor Rex preached an amazing sermon entitled, God Speaks Through Scripture. And you can hop on our website and go to sermons and look at that. I believe it was the sixth sermon in that 10-part series that he just wrapped. And he does an amazing job giving us practical instruction on how to understand the Bible generally. But also, if you go to about the 23-minute mark of that sermon, you can actually see where he gives some amazing practical instruction on how to better understand the Old Testament. So if you're someone who wants to dig into the Old Testament a little more, I would encourage you to check that out. I think you'll find it both very clear and helpful. I am confident, regardless, though, of your interactions in the past with the Old Testament, that you're going to see how amazing God's Word is from Genesis to Revelation. I believe at the end of this series, you're going to be able to see that the Old Testament is just as relevant and powerful and authoritative as the New Testament. So if you have your Bible with us today, I'd invite you to click or turn to the book of Haggai. And we're going to be in the first chapter of Haggai, going verses 1 through 6 to get us started. So I'll give you a moment to find it. Haggai doesn't get a lot of fanfare. It might take you a little while to find it. But Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, will kick off this three-week study entitled, A Wake-Up Call for a Sleeping Giant. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, says this. In the second year of Darius the king... In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, to the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. In order for us to really understand what's going on in the book of Haggai, we need to back up about 16 years before Haggai was given this particular message from God. You see, about 16 years before Haggai was given a message from God to give to God's people, the Jewish people were in the land of Israel. They had just gotten done with the Babylonian captivity. It was a period of about 70 years where the Jewish people were taken out of their land and they were captive in the land of Babylon. But they have since come back into the land. And again, about 16 years before God spoke through Haggai, he gave his people a mission. That mission, he said, was to rebuild the temple, build a physical temple, a place where my people can fellowship, can worship, can pray, 
where sacrifices can be made for the covering of sins, where people can be reconciled and in close harmony with God. God desired for his people to build a physical temple, and they immediately responded. They started building. They worked together amazingly. But shortly thereafter, a people called the Samaritans came and discouraged God's people. The Samaritans came and they distracted God's people. They wanted to have meetings. They wanted to join in. They wanted to slow this project down. And eventually, through bureaucracy, they get the government involved to slow this temple building project down. And eventually, it came to a screeching halt. And there the temple stood, not anywhere near finished, not anywhere near functional or completed, for 16 years And it was at that point in time when God spoke through Haggai. I want you to look again with me at verse 2. We're going to see the first excuse that God's people gave God as to why they were not faithful to the mission God had given them. Haggai 1 verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. What are they saying? In essence, they're telling God, God, through my actions and maybe even through their own words, when it comes to your mission, it can wait. God, when it comes to your mission of building this temple, it can wait. You see, the people of God in Haggai's day had no sense of urgency about resuming with this project that had got slowed down many years prior. And if you look at their mission, it's kind of a simple mission in essence. They had a mission to build a physical temple. God said, here's my mission for you, to the people in Haggai's day, all the people of God, I want you to do your part to build a physical temple. Now, we Christians in the church have a slightly different mission, but it's not all that different. You see, for us as Jesus followers, we don't have the mission given to us to build a physical temple. Rather, God in his word says, my mission for you, the church, for you, my people, is to build a spiritual temple. Consider what the apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 5. He says this, speaking to the church, You are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. In the same way that the physical temple in the Old Testament brought man and God back and together into reconciliation, the same thing's happening in the church. We are building a spiritual temple. Furthermore, look what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2. 20 through 21, he says much the same thing. Together we are his house or his temple built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. Both Peter and Paul are saying God's people today have a mission not to build a physical temple but to build a spiritual temple. Now, that may be beautiful and poetic but it at the same time, could often be unclear. So I want to point us to what I think are the clearest marching orders that God gives to the church, and that's found on the lips of Jesus in Matthew 28, 
verses 19 through 20. There's essentially three things that God's people are given as their mission. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus says this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Those three things, that is what God's people are charged with. We are to see that disciples are made. By that, it means we are to see to it that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, goes forth into the world to as many people as possible. We're to see to it that people take the step of obedience of baptism, and we are to train and help other people learn how to obey everything that Jesus commanded. Please hear me now. Please hear me. All Christians have the same mission. All Christians have the same mission. It's not up to us to discover or create our mission. If we are followers of Jesus, then we follow what the master says, and he tells the entirety of the church to make disciples, baptize, and teach them how to grow in maturity in Christ. But oftentimes we, and I'll include myself in this, I think this is a problem we all have to one degree or another. All of us, just like the people in Haggai's day, let's be honest, we have an it can wait mentality, don't we? Oftentimes we have an it can wait mentality when it comes to the mission of God, but God urges every Christian to have this burning sense of urgency, this fire in the belly to do our part in this mission that he's given us. But it's one thing to think about the mission of God in terms of building a spiritual temple or to think about it in terms of making converts is kind of what Matthew 28 sort of sounds like. I love these two following verses to help give us an emotional picture of what the mission of God really looks like. Proverbs 24:11 says this, rescue those who are being taken away to death Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. That's a great description of the mission of God. We're to be people that are actively, with a sense of urgency, responding to this mission of saving those who are being taken away to death. In the book of Jude, in the 23rd verse, we see a similar idea. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stain by the flesh. That's our mission. The stakes are unbelievably high. It's a matter of eternal life or eternal death. And God tells us we are to be people that have a sense of urgency, that have an it can't wait mentality, that we are people that are quick to snatch, we are quick to rescue and forsake an it can wait mentality. While we all share the same mission, though, the reality is every single Christian has a unique gifting given by God to do their specific role in the mission of God. Every single Christian has a unique role when it comes to fulfilling the mission of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7 spells this out very clearly. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts. In other words, those are gil, uh, gifts or skills that God gives us spiritually. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. There are, two, there are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. 
God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. Listen to this. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. Do you catch what Paul's saying there? Paul is saying that when someone comes to faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells them, God, through the Spirit, gives us a particular skill set, particular gifts, and oftentimes the experiences in our lives, both good and bad, play into that, but God gives us a specific skill set so that we can do our unique part in the mission of God. One man has described the church as being like the Navy. You know, the Navy has one mission. The, the mission of the Navy is pretty clear, but within the Navy, you may have engineers and cooks and medics, and you may have people in the infantry. There's all these different specific skills that are needed, and they all rely on one another in this intricate way, and God's people are the same way. Every single Christian is having this gift given to them at the moment they truly trust in Christ. But I think what happens a lot in the church, I mean, I've been guilty of this in the past, is we tend to think that there's like varsity Christians and like JV Christians, you know, right? There's like the really super, like, come on, Pastor Rex is varsity, right? Pastor Rex is up there. And then like, we're, some of us are JV, like we're into it, but we're not as into it. You know, they're really gifted at it. Or maybe look at missionaries uh, and see them as the people that are carry out mission of God, even though the word missionary is not actually in the Bible, we tend to look to the missionaries to do it or ministers or whatever it may be. We tend to make these distinctions and we think there's varsity and then there's JV, but God's word's clear. Each of us have a specific gifting that we are to employ in the service of God and his mission. I was reminded of this just this week. Uh, there's a gentleman in our church who I meet with about once a week and we go through scripture together. We read uh, during the week and we come together to discuss it. And this person has been amazingly saved by the grace of God. God has delivered this person from different addictions and issues that plagued him for many, 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 many years. He's been very blessed through Celebrate Recovery and other groups and organizations. But you know, he and I were meeting this week. We weren't talking about this text. We weren't talking about this idea of the mission of God. And by the way, he's only been a believer maybe a year if I had to guess. But he said to me, sort of out of the blue, Matt, I am on a mission to help people find sobriety. He didn't have anyone tell him this is how you should think or anyone coax him into that best I can tell. It's just something where he recognizes God has worked amazingly in his life and he therefore in turn wants to bless others. And let's just really get it out there. Anyone in this room right now, if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know why we're a follower of Jesus Christ? It's because upstream somewhere years ago, at least one person, and for many of us, a multitude of people got serious about the mission of God and they refused to have an it can wait mentality. It's like we're under this great tree when we're in Christ that other people planted and watered decades ago and now God is calling his people to pay it forward to the next generation and to not let the blessings stop with them. The reality is because the stakes are so high, because it is life or death, and not just a physical life or death, a spiritual life or death, it cannot wait. The mission of God cannot wait. The stakes are just too high. 
And God's people had a tough time coming to terms with that in the day of Haggai. And I think we have a tough time coming to terms with that in 2019 as well. Let's look at the other excuse that God's people give by turning our attention to verses 7 through 9 of Haggai chapter 1. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, listen to this, because of my house, that is the temple, that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. See the second excuse that God's people gave to God about why they should be excluded or exempted from God's mission. Three simple words. They essentially said, God, your mission sounds great, but frankly, I'm too busy. Did you catch that? God says through the prophet, my house is lying in ruins, and the reason is each of you busies himself with his own house. Now, I'm going to ask for a show of hands in just a moment here, and I'm going to raise my hand to this next question, so it's not too embarrassing, I hope. But if you're here and you would consider your life to be busy, can you just raise your hand? If you have a busy life, raise your hand. Don't be shy. Okay, that's, that's virtually everyone, right? All of us have busy lives. And even the busiest of us can sometimes feel as if there's no margin, there's no white space, we have no discretionary time, but the reality is I've never met a person that doesn't have any free time to tool around with during the week. It may be minimal depending on their season of life, their vocation, their health, any number of factors, but almost everybody has some discretionary time that they have control over. But I think the problem is we often look at our calendar and we look at the busyness of our lives and we think that we're this helpless victim of circumstance when it comes to our lives. We think that we're helpless to do anything about the busyness of life. But I heard this quote recently and I love it. When it comes to my calendar, I am the thermostat, not the thermometer. When it comes to my calendar, I am the thermostat, not the thermometer. Love that. The thermometer tells us the temperature of the room. The thermostat sets the temperature of the room. And the reality is in our lives, when we look at our schedules, when we look at our busyness, at least to some degree, we are the thermostat. It's one of the really helpful things about calendars, I believe, is they're kind of like these built-in fact checkers. They sort of are like these polygraph uh, machines to a certain degree because Many of us have stated values where we say we, we value this or we value that or this is important to us or that is important to us. But, you know, if we look at our calendars and the way we allocate our time, the truth really does kind of come to the surface when we do that painful task of looking. You know, several years ago, I was trying to volunteer at a church that I was somewhat new to. I had become a member. And when I did the volunteer application, I was going through it, and there's the normal things that they would ask. When did you come to faith in Christ? What's your name? Any particular gifts you know of? That sort of a thing. And then they had this question that jumped off the page at me. It offended me, if I'm being honest. It said, how many hours a week 
can you volunteer at our church? How many hours a week can you volunteer at our church? And I did some quick math and said, it feels like it's about this much time. And I put that in. Next question. How many hours a week do you spend watching television? (laughs) And on the one hand, if I'm being honest, I thought, how boneheaded can you be to try and shame people that are trying to actively volunteer? But on the other hand, it really made an impression on me. I felt like a dog protecting its bone. I thought, started thinking to myself, well, who are you to try and guilt trip me into doing more at the church? And who are you to try? Well, I have a family. I'm in seminary. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And it occurred to me, I think for many of us, we're way more guarded with our discretionary time. We're protective of that than we are our time devoted to the mission of God. Now, to be sure, the mission of God does not require that we don't have hobbies or friends or relationships or go to Yankees games or Red Sox games or whatever you're into. The mission of God doesn't mean we have to drop every part of our life and only think about and only pursue and only give consideration to the mission of God. You know, one way I know that is the case is I mentioned earlier there was a first temple. King Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem You can read about that in the book of 1 Kings and in other places. And if you read through that, you'll learn about how beautiful the temple was, how many people worked on it, what their skills were. They built this amazing temple to the God of Israel. But it appears at the very same time, simultaneously, Solomon was doing something else. 1 Kings 6 talks about the building of the temple. In the very next chapter, the very first verse, 1 Kings 7 says... And Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. You see, God's reasonable. Solomon is prioritizing the house of God and at the same time working on his house. There's not this mutually exclusive relationship between the mission of God and having a life. The problem is not that God is unreasonable. The problem is, at least for me a lot of the time, I'm unreasonable with what I'm willing to do to ditch my excuses. Being faithful to the mission of God and having a life are not mutually exclusive. It's not what God asks. The flip side, though, is, listen, you must remember this. There is a real cost to not prioritizing the mission of God in your life. The mission of God can exist side by side with us caring for things of this world. We don't have to choose between one or the other, but if we put the mission of God underneath that and it starts to take a back seat, there's a real cost in our lives. Verses 7 through 11 say this, We'll recap and read the rest of this passage. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld their dew, 
The earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. God's saying because we're busying ourselves, because we're making excuses, because the people in Haggai's day were doing that, God says, your investments, they're going to be terrible. You're going to labor in vain in many areas of your life. The land is going to be stricken as long as you operate in this way. And you may read that and go, is God some kind of an ogre? What is going on here? Is God just sort of being in this tit-for-tat mode where he's upset that God's people aren't on his mission, so he's just retaliating? That's not what's going on here. What is going on here is this. The God that saved us loves those that are perishing enough to allow external pressure in our life to light a fire under us so that we get serious about his mission. God cares for each man and woman right now of every race all around the world that is perishing because they're dead in their sins and trespasses. He cares about them so much that if we won't of our own volition on the front end prioritize his mission and take it seriously and give it its due, if we won't do that, he will allow, at least at times, according to the book of Haggai, external circumstances and pressures to kind of give us a kick in the rear to get us going. But in addition to that, God loves us so much that he doesn't want us trying to scratch these itches with worldly pursuits that only he can scratch. You know, he's telling these people in Haggai's day, you're pursuing money and accomplishments and perhaps relationships. You're pursuing all these as a means to an end. You want the money and the relationships and the entertainment. You want all of that because ultimately you want to be secure. You want to feel like you have purpose. You want to be content. And you're chasing those through worldly means that cannot deliver on what they promise. They are leaky buckets that are unable to ultimately provide security, purpose, and contentment. And God loves us enough to grab us by the shoulders at times through circumstances to try and wake us up because he knows that this pursuit of contentment and security, he knows that if we're pursuing that apart from him, it's a pursuit in vain. This is one of the most fascinating and counterintuitive truths that Jesus taught. And he teaches it again and again and again. Essentially, Jesus says, the key to living the good life is to essentially give up on pursuing the good life. It's basically what Jesus says. Here's something I wrote this week when I was thinking about this passage. I know what it's like to have a calendar that's filled full, but myself feel unfulfilled. Jesus turns the world's way of pursuing security, contentment, purpose, enjoyment on its head. And he says over and over again, essentially, if you're chasing the good life, you'll never find it. A few examples of this as we draw to a close. Acts 20, 35, Jesus is said 
has said this in the past, and he's being quoted in Acts 20, 35. Jesus says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, my life is more enriched, more fulfilled. I'd go so far as to say more enjoyable when I'm someone who gives my life for others rather than live my life in pursuit of receiving things for myself. And there are many, many different studies out there that bear this out. You can look at different studies that are out there that show people that pursue happiness, when people aim for happiness, they are more likely to be unhappy. Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. Your life is more enriched, more blessed if we give than if we receive. And what more can we give than putting our whole life on mission to save those that are perishing? Consider what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, 31 through 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Christ is teaching his people to not be like everyone else that doesn't know how good our Heavenly Father is, that live life neurotic and hysterical, worried about money, worried about the future, worried about security. He says, your Father loves you, and if you put my kingdom, my mission first, those things will be taken care of amply, but you have to seek first the kingdom. So he says, don't chase after those things. Don't try and scratch that itch for yourself prioritize my mission, and I'll make sure all those things will be added to you. And finally, Mark 8, 34 through 35. Jesus says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. I think we read that and we think he's saying, hey, if we live a life of discipline here following Christ, we'll have heaven later. I think Jesus is just as much talking about life here and now. If you want that abundant life, that good life that he promises, the better life, the more abundant life than the life the world offers, then the pathway to that is to prioritize the gospel and to lose our life for his sake and in doing so, we will find it. C.S. Lewis has a great quote we'll put up on the screen in just a moment. It's one of my all-time favorite quotes where he sums up this counterintuitive idea that the path to the good life is to forsake the good life and get on mission with God. Get serious about treasuring Christ above all else. C.S. Lewis says this, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. So what should we do? If you're like me, and at times you find that there's a natural drift away from the mission of God, how should we respond to this? Well, first, very practically, if you are unaware of your spiritual gifting, if you're not sure how God has wired you, if you're unsure about how you can best make an impact for his mission, 
I would invite you following today's service to stop by the info desk in the lobby. We here at Grace have a class called 301, and that whole class is designed to help you better understand yourself, know how God wired you, what experiences God's given you, and how he has gifted you spiritually so that you can fan that gift into a flame and make the biggest impact possible for his kingdom. You can find out more information about that at the info desk. The next one we have scheduled is in the fall, but we are willing to put one here in August if we have enough people show interest. So make sure you check that out. Second, I want to invite you to assess the season that you're in. Think about the season that you're in. All of us have said that we're busy, and there's a lot of truth to that. That's, that's a true statement. We are busy people. But think about the season that you're in and just ask yourself, am I making these excuses? Do I have an it can wait mentality? Or do I have an it cannot wait mentality? You know, for some of you, it would not be wise to get into some high level of commitment area of serving because of the particular season that you're in. So if you're in a season, you have little ones in the house, you're going through issues that could be any different kind of issue, but if you're honestly at a place where you can't do much more formally or get involved in a high capacity way, I would invite you to just put a note on your calendar or on your phone for six months from now to revisit that season then and see if things have perhaps changed. You know, some season changes are obvious. A grade, you know, you graduate from one grade to the next or you become an empty nester. There are certain seasons that have a clear beginning and end. But oftentimes, we don't realize that we're operating in the present based upon an outdated dynamic about our schedules and the season of life that we're in. That was certainly the case with God's people in Haggai's day. They were saying the time has not yet come. But from what we can tell, the Samaritans had kind of stopped trying to oppose them. They were the only ones keeping themselves from getting on mission. Of course, if you do assess your schedule and see, man, I really am not prioritizing the mission of God, I'd invite you to remove things, add things, shorten things, make some things longer prayerfully because the stakes are that high. Finally, I would invite you to develop what I call a drop-everything mentality when it comes to the mission of God. As much as is possible, and there are limitations to this, I'm not talking about a boundaryless life, but try and develop a drop-everything mentality when a new believer needs you, when a brother or sister is in crisis, when there's an opportunity to share the gospel. Second Timothy is a book where we can see that Paul tells Timothy regarding his gifting be ready in season and out of season. When things are fairly easy with ministering and when things are not conducive in my personal life to ministering, be ready. And I would challenge you as much as humanly possible to adopt a drop everything mentality. As we close, I wanna ask you, if you raised your hand earlier because you said you had a busy life or if you were too scared but you do think you have a busy life, can you just raise your hands again and keep them raised? Can we see them? I'm still busy, nothing's changed in the past 25 minutes for me. If we can just keep them up for a second, I wanna invite everybody in this room, just look around you for a little bit. Imagine how things might look if everybody here that said they're busy, keep them up. Imagine if everybody in this room who said that they're busy 
disengaged from the mission of God. What might the Capitol District look like? Now look around this room and imagine if all of us took our next step of obedience and refused to make excuses for the mission of God. How do you think the Capitol District might look then? I think we would begin to wake up a sleeping giant. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for how gracious you are to us. Thank you that you are long-suffering and patient. God, you are so good and so merciful. Lord, I pray that this message for no one in this room is one of shame and guilt and manipulation. But I do pray that you will give us a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. For those of us in this room who have not prioritized your mission and who have made excuses, God, forgive us and thank you that there's no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. For others in this room that have a laser-like focus on the mission, God, we ask that you would continue to bless them with your presence and your favor. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.